Well, please remain standing with me and please take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke. To the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2 in particular. Our text for today's sermon is found beginning in verse 21. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. This scene here that is given a title in the NASB as Jesus being presented at the temple. Jesus being presented at the temple. Let me read this passage for us. I actually read this passage, if you recall, uh, following the service, following Brother Lynn's sermon last week, and just having read through it to prepare us for uh, the coming Christmas celebration, I was intrigued into this passage. And so as soon as I got the call to preach this Sunday, I thought I knew what my passage would be. So um, let's read together. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. It says, When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout and was looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord... You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Let's pray for our sermon today. Well, Lord, my prayer is that you would bless these people here today. Lord, bless your people by accomplishing with your word everything that you have appointed for it. Lord, we pray that the same spirit that enlightened Simeon here in our passage would enlighten our minds to understand your word. That as we sit here today, we would be submitted and would be encouraged and would be anxious to hear from God himself, the creator of the universe. And we have that great privilege today as we have our Bibles opened before us. And so, Lord, stir us up. Lord, stir us up to hear from you today. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on the hearers. Lord, bless yourself Glorify yourself in our midst, Lord, and let us benefit from this as well. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, today we, we give ourselves, uh, we give our attention to, to a man in the scriptures who is very often an overlooked character in the Bible. Uh, this man Simeon is often overlooked, but yet he's right here in the mix of the incarnational narrative of the Gospel of Luke. And somehow, uh, being right here, he's forgotten about even uh, at the time when we think about the coming of Christ at Christmas time. And so I don't think it's right. I think this man Simeon ought not to be forgotten. Uh, the Bible, as we know, makes it a point to honor people like this man Simeon. We're all familiar with that woman who was honored because she honored the Lord at the time of his death by pouring and anointing him with that oil. And so she was honored by forever being inscripturated in the very pages of the Bible for her honoring of Jesus at his death. And so too, this man Simeon is honored and memorialized in the scriptures for us for the honor that he pays to the Lord Jesus Christ at his birth. This man Simeon is here set before us as a model, as a model for us to follow because as we look at this man Simeon here, we see all of the fervor, all of the zeal, all this satisfaction that he had as he looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. And so, we too, brothers and sisters, need to have that same fervor, zeal, satisfaction of looking back upon the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. This man Simeon looked forward and we look back, but we're both looking to Christ. So let's begin our exposition then of this passage. Luke chapter 2 verse 21. Here we're beginning with just the context This is certainly just the context, and the context is being the very birth of Jesus and the following, uh, the things that follow here. So verse 21 again says, When eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so here Luke is recording for us just a couple of facts. The fact that Jesus was in fact circumcised on the eighth day. He was given his name, Jesus, at this same time. This circumcision on the eighth day is of course um, in alignment and as a result of the law of Moses uh, found in Leviticus chapter 12 verse 3 that command to have uh, the male circumcised a law of the Lord that actually finds its origins all the way back into Genesis 17, where there God reiterates His covenant with Abraham and with Abraham's descendants and their calls for the firstborn male and all the males uh, to be circumcised. Here we know uh, that Jesus receives His name and we know that's a result of the angel Gabriel um, coming to both Joseph and Mary and in giving this name for Jesus, a name of great significance, as the very name itself means God saves. And so a perfect name for the very Savior. These things I think we're very familiar with, but what we may not be so familiar with are the following 
um, events here in our text, verses 22 through 24. Because here we have Joseph and Mary bringing baby Jesus from Bethlehem to Jerusalem for three distinct reasons. We're going to look at these three distinct reasons uh, quickly, but this is just setting up the context for Jesus' visit to Simeon. Uh, We're going to notice that all these three distinct reasons that Jesus is being brought to the temple in Jerusalem, all these reasons are prescribed by the law of Moses. All these things are prescribed by the law of Moses. We'll see that most of them, in fact, are um, inscripturated in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. You'll hear that book mentioned several times today. And and because that is the reality, um, to many, the book of Leviticus is not a significant book. But to the parents of Jesus, to Jesus himself, most significantly, Leviticus was a a significant book and therefore it should be to us as well. But let's look at these three reasons that the parents bring the Son of God to the temple in Jerusalem. The first aspect we see here in verse 22 is the timing involved. The timing involved. Verse 22 says, And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed. The days for their purification were completed. This is straight out of Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 5, that says uh, that the mother, after giving uh, birth to a male child, is to remain unclean for 40 days before she can come to the temple and complete or consummate um, her purification from giving birth. And so... There was this element in the law of God of this ceremonial uncleanness that results from the giving of birth. Um, we also see here, and we know now, just as far as the timing of our narrative and our passage, that Jesus is now a little over a month old. Jesus is now a little over a month old as he approaches the temple in Jerusalem with his parents. The second aspect of this trip that we see is in the second half of verse 22 where it says they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. To present him to the Lord. Baby Jesus is being brought by his parents to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. This also is found in the law of God, the necessity of this. Um, It's found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. And this command is originally found uh, in connection to the Exodus event where if you'll recall that God killed the firstborn child, the firstborn male of all of the land of Exodus. But now, conversely, God is redeeming for himself the firstborn male of all of Israel. And so that's where we find uh, the origins of this command. Luke here, if you see in verse 23, quotes and references the very law of God where this is found. Verse 23 says, As it is written, the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Lastly, this trip to the temple in Jerusalem is for the purpose of what verse 24 says, the purpose to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, back to Leviticus again for this 
um, citing of the law. This was a sacrifice from Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. And this aspect of the sacrifice was to complete the purification of the mother who just gave birth. There was to be a burnt offering and there was to be a sin offering given to the Lord. Now, if you go and read Leviticus chapter 12, what's interesting about this is that Leviticus actually prescribes that a lamb and a bird be given as this sacrifice. And it's only, Leviticus 12 says, if the mother cannot afford the lamb, that she's able to bring uh, these two birds instead. And so I just thought it was very ironic that uh, the very Son of God's parents ironically have to bring the offering of the poor um, into the temple. The incarnate Son of God's parents bring the offering for the poor. But in all of this, uh, what we see here as Luke, the author of this gospel, uh, being a Gentile, writing his gospel to another Gentile, Theophilus, if you read the introduction of the gospel, it's interesting that even as a Gentile, Luke includes all of this significance here of this scene at the temple in Jerusalem for the reason, I believe, to show the willingness of the parents of of baby Jesus to ensure that they and their son are fulfilling all of the law of God. And so even as an infant, we see Jesus fulfilling the law of God. Now we know why this is, because Paul tells us explicitly in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, for instance, where there it tells us that when the fullness of time came, that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. John MacArthur, in, in his sermons on this passage, and I believe he's following William Hendrickson in his commentaries, they note the significance of all of this, that even as an infant, Jesus is even passively already fulfilling the law of God in all aspects for the purpose that He might become a perfect substitute for lawbreakers. Now those truths and everything that we looked at is really all just the context for our passage today. The context being the family now with Jesus arriving at the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is now some 40 days old, keeping the law of God in step already. But now let's turn to see this man, Simeon. This man who's been waiting for the coming of the Christ, a man who's certainly been heeding the words of the old covenants foretelling of these things. Verse 25, it says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon this man, Simeon. It's interesting as you read through the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke, all concerning now the incarnation of Christ. These first few chapters read something like an an incarnational hall of faith, to use the words uh, from the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. Because really in these opening chapters, what we're seeing put before us is the faithfulness 
of some of the saints of old. We have John the Baptist's parents put before us, Jesus' parents put before, that, put before us as righteous examples of those who are welcoming the Christ into the world. And now we have this man, Simeon. If we were to keep reading, we would see this uh, godly woman, Anna, put forward as an example as well. But what's also interesting is that really these seem to be the only ones mentioned. This small remnant, this small number of the elect who are actually aware of the Christ being in their very presence. There seems to be but a few. But out of that group is is Simeon for our consideration today. And again, it said that he was a righteous man, a devout man, and that he's looking for the consolation of Israel. And that phrase is what I want us to hone in on now. Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? What is that even referring to? Well, I have a quote here from John Calvin from his commentary on this very text. I don't normally put a lot of quotes um, into my teachings, but sometimes you read something that is said so perfectly that you know you're going to say it, uh, but you don't want to plagiarize, so I'm just going to have to quote John Calvin here. It's, it's perfect. This is what he says here concerning this phrase that Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. Calvin says, It was proof of his being a devout man, that he waited for the consolation for Israel. For no true worship of God can exist without the hope of salvation, which depends on the faith of His promises, and particularly on the restoration promised through Christ. John Calvin said a lot in that sentence. And if you were listening carefully, um, I just wanted to you to notice the correlation that Calvin made here between that phrase, the consolation of Israel, and what Calvin refers to as the promises, plural, of God. There's a correlation that he's making there between the consolation of Israel and the promises of God. And I think to make that correlation is right, and I think it's good, and I think... To make the correlation to the promises of God is one step away from making another rightful correlation, and that is from the promises of God to the covenants that God has made with His people. Uh, these words are so oftenly um, used interchangeably. Uh, the promises of God, the covenants of God, the oaths of God, it also says in Scripture. And so as you're trying to wrap your head around What is the consolation of Israel? I think the consolation of Israel is is as multifaceted as as is all the promises that God has made to His people through His covenants with them. And because that consolation is multifaceted, as you read through the Gospels, you see many of the Jews uh, erroneously only uh, seemingly only to be concerned with some aspects of the promises of God um, and not viewing them as a whole or even understanding them as a whole. As you read through the Gospels, it seems uh, that the majority of the Jews were only looking for certain aspects of the promises like the land promises given to Israel, the 
the subsequent freedoms from bondage and oppression that the, that the prophets spoke of, and they were looking for a Messiah to free them from Roman rule. But as we know, and as Calvin obviously clearly understood, what Paul tells us, most importantly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that says, For as many as are the promises of God in Him, in Christ, they are yes and amen. For as many are as, as the promises of God in Him, they are yes. Meaning, in Christ, all the promises of God find their fulfillment, their realization, their meaning in Him. All the promises of God. Starting from the very beginning, in Genesis 3.15, the promise that that seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. That promise that I believe is a foundational promise to all the promises to come. Now, why do I say that? Well, I believe in Genesis 3.15 that you can see some of the most significant aspects here of this one to come. First of all, in that that seed promise from Genesis 3.15 that the theologians refer to as the first gospel, the promise that the seed of the woman will crush, uh, crush the head of the serpent. From this one phrase, we see some very important things. We see that the promise of God is concerning a person. It's concerning a man to come. We also see that his primary work will be to crush the head of the serpent who is our greatest enemy, as is as he is and was the conduit of our greatest problem, which is sin. All of that is seen in the one phrase, that one early promise in Genesis 3.15. The consolation of Israel, God's promise of comfort, you could say his covenant is concerning a man to come. I want to read another verse from the Old Testament just to show you how this concept, how this promise develops from Genesis 3.15 through the prophets. I'm going to read Isaiah 42, verse 6. Isaiah 42, verse 6. A text where we have the Lord Yahweh speaking to His Messiah. And it says this, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And notice this. Yahweh says that to His Messiah, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Isaiah 42 is a passage that is right in the midst of some of the clearest messianic prophecy in the Bible. And what do we find God saying about His Messiah? That He would be appointed as a covenant to the people. The very covenant of God, this language is being personified and embodied in a person. The covenant of God is a person, the Messiah. By the grace of God and by the work of the Spirit, Simeon, this old covenant saint, understood this. 
As Calvin said, and he was right to say, this was the greatest proof of Simeon's righteousness, of his devoutness, that he was looking for the consolation of Israel, that seed to come, that seed of the king who would assume David's throne forever and would bring forgiveness of sins to his people. Obviously, Simeon was looking for this consolation by faith. And now I want us to move on to the next scene in our story. The scene here where Simeon's faith would become sight. Simeon's faith becomes sight. I'm going to begin reading here in the very last phrase of verse 25. And I'm doing that intentionally. Maybe you will be able to tell why. I'm going to read down through verse 28. It says, And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and he blessed God. I'm going to stop there. I included the very end of verse 25 simply to illustrate for you, to emphasize the fact that even pre-Pentecost, the Spirit of God is mightily at work in the hearts and in the thinking and in the knowledge of His elect. In those very few verses that I read there, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is mentioned three times. It's the same as it was for Peter. Just as flesh and blood did not reveal to the Apostle Peter who Jesus was, but it was by the Spirit of God this revelation was made known to him, so too the same Holy Spirit of God revealed here to Simeon, interestingly enough, not just, to whom, not just who the Messiah was, but that he would personally get to see him with his own eyes before he died. What a, what a special grace of God that was dispensed to this saint, Simeon. Simeon getting to be present as the words of the prophets, for instance, like Malachi, are being fulfilled, or at least I think as far as Malachi 3.1 is considered, at least being inaugurated by this scene at the temple. Malachi 3.1 said, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. Simeon gets to be there for an inauguration of this prophecy. I think that prophecy being ultimately culminated in Matthew chapter 21 as Jesus comes to the temple in his triumphant uh, procession in full disclosure of his Messiahship. But here, Simeon, this This old covenant saint gets a taste of Jesus' coming glory now in in his old age. Think of it, he's given the opportunity to hold the very Son of God in his arms, the consolation of Israel, and he's able to bless God for his covenant faithfulness. And so this blessing that Simeon gives is what I want us to turn our attention to next. Um, This blessing here is contained in verses 29 through 
32. It might be offset a bit in your Bible. It's interesting to note that this blessing that Simeon gives, this prophetic blessing, this prayer that he gives to God in verses 29 through 32, is perceived by the the biblical commentators to be a song. To be a song. And they all give a couple of reasons for this. Number one, the very Greek text in this passage lends itself, and the prose lends itself to being a song. The other reason they point out is that Simeon's song here falls right in line with the other four songs that we find here in the previous two chapters of Luke. They all reference these these other songs that we see. And for instance, in chapter 1, you see Elizabeth extolling the Lord, Mary, uh, Zechariah has a song. Chapter 2, we see the angels proclaiming and singing the good news. And now we have this man, Simeon, joining in the song. And so I just thought how fitting it was that singing be a part of the Christmas season. This great miracle of the incarnation has obviously stirred up the saints of old to joy and to worship that has led them to song. This portion of Scripture, as early as the 4th century, has been used in church liturgy to end the night services, to end night worship services, both in the Eastern and Western churches. It has a name, the Nunc Dimittis. That's Latin. That's the very first words of the Latin Vulgate from verse 29 that we translate, Now you dismiss. Now you dismiss your servant. And so... Simeon's song, now as he holds the Messiah, is what I want us to consider. Beginning in verse 29, his song says, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. We often wonder, we often ask the question, how much did the Old Testament saints understand? How much did they, did they get? How deep was their Christological theology? I think a lot of the times as, as we seem to wonder about them, maybe we get discouraged, maybe we uh, assume a certain thing about their grasp of revelation. It's just when we seem to assume those kinds of things, we get statements like these. Uh, from one of the Old Covenant saints uh, that might lead us to think differently. And if you still wonder, I mean, this is a small song. This is a small uh, passage by Simeon. Just go back to the first couple of chapters here in the Gospel of Luke and read all of the songs. And I think um, as you read through them and see the the richness of the theology that these Old Covenant saints had, Um, I doubt very seriously that you will still doubt the theological depth of the Old Covenant saints. It's it's even more profound to consider this uh, when you consider the idea that they did not have yet the coming of the Messiah. They did not have yet all of the revelation that we have in the doctrine in the New Testament. And it's quite amazing to see what of the Old Covenant God had graciously revealed to them So what do we first see here in Simeon's song? 
where we see his confirmation, his confession that he is a bondservant, that he is a slave, a doulos of God, who after all of his faithful toil is now able to die in peace. All of his longing, all of his anxiety is over. The Lord has fulfilled his word as he always does. In Simeon, as with a few of the select few of God's people that we see in the Old Testament, they have this awareness from God through a direct prophecy that it is time for their death. I don't know if that would make you more anxious or less anxious, but for those who have great faith and are not wavering in what their future holds, that is a joy to them as it is for Simeon, surely. In verse 30 now, we see as as Simeon looks down upon this baby in his arms, what is it that Simeon sees as he looks upon this baby? Simeon sees salvation itself. Because verse 30 says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Again, all of salvation is wrapped up in this child. A child of a seemingly ordinary family, of no apparent rank, no apparent esteem in the eyes of the world. A child of a family that when it came to giving the very basic sacrifices in the temple, had to take the option for the poor. There's no real fanfare. There's no crowds here. As this child is brought to the temple for his dedication. But yet, and Simeon knows that in this child lies the difference for countless multitudes on whether they will forever dwell under the furious wrath of God Almighty or whether they will dwell forever in the blessings and comforts of God's presence. All of that is found in this child. In this child is the only hope that sin will one day be finally eradicated and that great enemy of God and man, Satan himself, will finally be resigned to the pit of hell. Simeon, by God's grace, understood all of this. He, he looked into this child and knew salvation is contained in this child. In a child. All of salvation. This is certainly a great mystery that all of this can be bound up in a baby, in this person, the Christ. The salvation of countless multitudes are bound up in a single person. But that's just how the Apostle Paul describes it, that this is a great mystery. Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, as Paul's writing to the churches in Colossae, he's letting them know that he's praying for them. Notice what he says to them concerning the Christ. He says there, as he prays that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. God's mystery, that is Christ himself. And if you have an NASB before you, uh, it's so helpfully... Um, illustrates some of Paul's points in that whatever words are not in the actual Greek, Greek text are italicized for you. 
And so you can see as you read your NASB that what Paul literally says is that this full assurance of understanding is resulting from a true knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. God's mystery, Christ. Certainly then, the person of Christ is a mystery, a miracle that God became flesh and dwelt among us. But the mystery gets deeper and the mystery continues in what that person of Christ would specifically accomplish in his salvation. Simeon had insight to this mystery as well. Look at what he says in verse 30 and going on because he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The fact that this baby would usher in the salvation of the Gentiles as well was a high point of Jesus Christ's redemptive work. That He was going to be a light to the Gentiles. I say it's a mystery. This was a prophetic prophetic theme of good news that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. If you remember what God told Abraham in His covenant promise that in you, in your seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. It's a theme that would continue to become more and more explicit throughout the prophets. For instance, Isaiah 49.6 fleshes this out more extensively where there it says, this is interesting, look at how explicit this gets in the reasoning that God gives for bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says, It is too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the very end of the earth. God extending His grace to make His salvation great. What's interesting is that despite all these passages in the Old Testament that this reality being spoken of, um, actually quite a bit if you, if you look into that, the interesting thing is that it was still such an unbelievable truth to the people of God, to the Jews, uh, at the time and coming of Christ as the gospel went out. It seemed to be an unbelievable thing because of God's long-standing history of dealing exclusively with Israel. He dealt exclusively with Israel for such a time that the fact that God was going to reach out to the Gentiles was, was a mystery. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read a couple of texts from Ephesians, so I thought it would be worth it if you turn there with me. The book of Ephesians seems to be, of all the New Testament books, it seems to be the book that devotes the most time to fleshing out and to expositing this reality, this mystery of Gentile inclusion into the people of God. Notice with me Ephesians chapter 3. I'm actually going to read the first six verses and Just notice how much discussion Paul devotes to the mystery of Christ and his reaching out to the Gentiles. 
Ephesians 3 verse 1 says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 5, is, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. Jesus then, the true Israel, accomplished what Israel never did before him. He brought the gospel to the Gentiles and became himself the very glory of Israel. Now I want you to stay in Ephesians because we, brothers and sisters... As Gentiles, as benefactors of this grace of God and this furtherance of the gospel that Jesus Christ made sure happened, we of all people should be most thankful that this is a reality. We should be grateful that this is true and that God has extended His grace. Uh, Look a page over to Ephesians chapter 2. I feel like I'm reading this passage almost every time I speak, but... It's so significant for you to grasp or you to appreciate the grace that God has extended to you that I just wanted to read it again. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 12 through 13, Paul speaking to the Gentiles, he says, remember, that's why I read this over and over because we need to remember this, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Notice the interchange of the words, the words covenant, promise. You were having no hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Never forget, brothers and sisters, that we were at one time strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. Thank God that we were brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's look lastly now at verse 33. As Simeon is extolling the song of praise and worship and thanksgiving, We see here that Jesus' parents are there, of course, witnessing this prophetic utterance of Simeon concerning their child. And notice what it says in verse 33, their reaction. It says, And his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. My question in relation to this is, for each of you really, For each of you that's here, are you amazed at all of this as well? I think that your reaction of either indifference or amazement may actually say a lot about the nature of your faith. 
Is this amazing to you? The coming of Christ, the mystery, the great miracle that it surely is. This is amazing. Think about the fact that the very angels of God who are in the very presence of God, even right now, the Bible tells us, long to look into these things. God Himself says these things are amazing. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5 that is quoted in the book of Acts says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. These things are amazing. These things are wonderful. And a good sign that you really believe these things is that you are amazed by them, that they were a wonder to you. I just want to leave you by saying, if your faith is not where you want it to be, continue to expose yourself to the incarnate one as he is found in your scriptures, as he is found in the Bible. The Bible itself tells us, Romans ten seventeen that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Open up your Bible. See the very Son of God becoming a man. That's amazing. All of this for the purpose, for the reason, it's according to His sovereign grace that He has extended now His salvation to us, even the Gentiles. Thank God, it's amazing. And this is what the Bible says is God's mystery. And brothers and sisters, we are so blessed to know this. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, Lord, give us faith. Lord, our sin is what keeps us from being amazed at this thing, at these things as we should. God, we confess our sinfulness to you, Lord, our lack of humility before you and, and for your word. We confess our grieving of your very Holy Spirit, Lord. We ask for grace and mercy, Lord. We pray that we would be given the faith of Simeon, that we would be brought to song, that we would be brought to rejoicing at the hearing of these things, at the hearing of these truths, of your word and of Christ in particular. Lord, we thank you for sending him. Lord, we worship you. We sing to you in light of these things now. In Jesus' name, amen.